you to the praise team. You really have no idea. I mean, we really don't understand how hard they work to lead you in worship and in praise. And thank you for my, the last one. That's my favorite song. And so that's a sign I'm maybe we're going to do good today. Um, I want to, there's a certain kind of sermon. All of us have this, and maybe we're not supposed to talk about it, but that's all I'm here for. So we all have some kind of a sermon that we really don't, it's not that we don't like it, it's just not our favorite one to sit through. And mine is whenever you, the sermon jumps all over the place and has multiple, multiple verses that I can't keep up. So what I've done is I'm going to present to you exactly what I can't stand. So just hang on because there's tons of verses today. Um, so we, uh, a few weeks ago, I was driving home from work, and I have my radio set to where I, I listen to pastors and I listen to messages when I'm traveling um, and when I'm driving. And I caught the very tail end, like I'm serious, like just the last few words of a sermon. I don't even know who the preacher was that was preaching. And he said, why are you here? Why do you go to church? And it was over. That was it. He didn't answer the question. And so that kind of, it just stuck with me. I mean, you ever have those things that you hear and you just can't get them out of your head and they just keep going over and over and that question just keeps popping. And, and so for the rest of the week, I just watched sermons and I would, I looked it up. You know, I'm the Google master. Every, I Google everything. So I looked it up and I'm and so we kind of fast forward to last week, and my wife was up here, um, I don't remember, she was up here for something, and she comes home, and she says, oh, Tim's looking for you. I'm like, well, what does he want? She said, I think he wants you to fill the pulpit. So the reason I tell you that story is before I ever knew I was going to be up here, I kind of was already given the message. And it was kind of, isn't it funny how God works? It's like he's laughing, because this whole time I'm thinking, Tim needs to preach on this. And God says, no, you do it. So here I am. We're going to do this. So I want to start by just asking us just a simple question, all right? Why do we assemble together as a church? Very simple question. Why, why do we keep doing this, right? Why do we keep coming to church? And I'm not asking, listen, I'm not asking what is the purpose of the church. That's a completely different topic. We're not talking about that. What I'm asking is why do we continue to gather why do we continue to come to this building and meet as the church? So as I was thinking about this, I started looking up some, some stats and stuff, and according to Lifeway Research, in 2019, 34% of Americans attended a religious service at least once or twice a month. And that fell to 31% in 2020, to 28% in 2021, and now, according to what I could find, it sits somewhere around 29%. Think about that. That's of all Americans, okay? But the part that bothered me was that in that same amount of time, people that say they never or seldom go to church rose from 50 to 57%. So in a, in a, a time, in a day, when church attendance is definitely not the norm, I think it's really, really important that we stop for a minute and we ask ourselves, why do I continue to do this? Not, not we, but individually, why do I continue to do this? And what I would like to do this morning is take a little time and examine just three reasons that I feel 
it is imperative that we continue to gather. No matter what else is happening out there, no matter you know, if, if culture says everything's going online, why is it imperative that we continue to meet as the church, not a church, as the church? First, we assemble to praise God. It started in worship. It started in, 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 with the songs this morning. I mean, that is not just something to warm you up so you can visit. You know, that's praise. That's worship. That's when worship started. And really, honestly, with the first one, we assemble to praise God. We could really just stop right there. Right? I mean, we serve a God who is worthy of praise. And who better to praise him than those that he has redeemed? That's what we're supposed to be doing is praising our Lord and Savior. And we need to do that together. Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. So when we enter his courts, when we assemble together, it should always be with praise. Now this isn't, I'm not talking about some emotional response that's tucked away in our heart. What I'm talking about is the, the praise that God deserves is an outward, vocal response. Right? Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Listen, that is the fruit of the lips that praise his name. Look, if you participate in the gathering of God's people, but you don't praise God, you've missed the purpose of why we're coming together. We gather to praise God. Psalm 84, 4. Blessed are those who dwell in the house. They are praising you forever. Those in the house of God should always be praising. And yet that's really not what happens a lot of the time. We come to church, but we, we, we come and we gather together, but we refuse to sing. We refuse to praise. We say things like, well, I don't really have a good voice. That's me. I don't like that song. I only sing the hymns. Or I don't really like that preacher. And I want to tell you, listen to me, I want to tell you that those reasons are insulting to the God who deserves your praise. If you can't praise here with other believers, how do you expect to praise out there? We praise God because he deserves it. Look, the reason we gather is not to be entertained. The reason that we gather is not so we can check that I went to church box or for our uh, you know, to boost our social life. The goal is not to leave here and say, wow, that was good. The goal of gathering together is for God to look down and say, wow, those people love me. And we show that through our praise. We gather because above all, we want to tell the Lord how much we love him. We want to praise him because of his excellence. So, the first reason that we gather, that it is imperative that we continue to gather, is to praise God. Second reason that we, continue, we must continue to assemble together is to encourage one another. Hebrews 10, 24, 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. 
not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Look, you need to understand, we as a body need to understand that we are, in fact, our brother's keeper. Because we're all in this together, right? And the fact that most of us are, uh, are likely to be less obedient on our own is just a really good reason for us to get together so we can encourage each other and spur each other on. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we are to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That means with our words, right? with our example, with our love, and sometimes even with, ever, with, uh, you know, with our discipline. But regardless, the per- what he's trying to tell us is that we have to come together to encourage each other. Right? The important thing to realize, the important, what I want you to understand is that we cannot stimulate one another to loving good deeds if we fail to assemble with other believers. You cannot do this on your couch watching TV. Now, I'm not talking about those people who can't be here because they're sick or because, you know, health issues um, or transportation. What I'm talking about is these people, I'm talking to the people, which I have a tendency to be one that just don't get up. They just don't want to get dressed. They just don't want to come. It's not that they just, they just don't take the time. Right? We say things like, my life is going good. I don't really need the church right now. But so you decide not to go. I can do it at home. Right? I can watch it on TV. Well, let me tell you what you did not realize. And I want to pause here and tell you I'm talking to myself. You just get to hear it. While your life was great, there's a person out there whose life is not great. Their finances are shot. You know, they have a family member who challenges Christianity at every, at, with every word and they don't know how to handle it. They have a loved one who's sick and they're worried all the time. See, that person woke up, came to church because they were in desperate need. They needed help. They need encouragement. They need answers. They need you. But see, you didn't come because your life is fine. See, the church is not beneficial because it's the church. It's beneficial because we become immersed in a a community of support and encouragement. Church is not something you attend or you watch. You are the church. We are the church. You don't go to church. You bring church. You are the church, and we have to remember that. So why do we continue to gather? We gather to praise God for his greatness, and we gather to encourage our brothers and sisters to be all that Christ intends them to be. And the third reason that we gather and this brings us to our main text, Ephesians 4, 7 through 13. And I just want to tell you, hold on, we're going to camp here a while. We assembled to hear the word of God. Now, before we jump in to, his, uh, to our text, we, we need a little context, right? So Paul, in Ephesians, has spent three chapters outlining all of the blessed realities of what it means to be in Christ. And then he changes 
after the first three chapters, he changes to expectation and application, and Ephesians 4 is the beginning of this application section. If you read the first six verses of chapter 4, what you're going to find is that Paul is calling for the unity of the church, right? In verse 3, he says that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then we move on to 7 through 10, and he starts telling us how God's going to help do that, how, how that occurs, right? So in verse 7, I'm going to read 7 through 10. It says, but to each one of us, does it say to all those others? No, it says to each one of us, to every one of us that is in Christ. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all of the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now, that's perfect, makes perfect sense, right? No, it's kind of all over the, but let me tell you, what Paul does here is he, he kind of, he takes some liberties, but he quotes Psalm 68, 18 as the fulfillment of Christ's ascension, right? So when Christ ascended, then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which he left us, um, is, is whom Christ gave the spiritual gifts through, right? So he's saying that when Christ ascended to heaven, he left the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is, one, is a gift to us, and, he, and he, the way Christ wanted to do it, he gave each of us a different gift, right? And there's many spiritual gifts we don't have time to go into all of them right now what i want you to know today is that in order to make the church all that he intended it to be christ equipped the church with spiritual gifts and what did i tell you what's the church that's us right that's us so in order for the church for us for the body to be all that christ intends it to be he equipped each of us with spiritual gifts, with a gift that we are to use in the body, right? Now, let's notice how Paul starts in verse 7. It says, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it, right? So different spiritual gifts have been given freely. You didn't earn them. You didn't have to work for them. They are given to each of us, and what are they referred to? They're referred to as grace, Right? And these gifts have been given, he says, as Christ apportioned it. In other words, God's grace is given out personally to each one of us. Now, I think it's really important that we pause here and we look at the, the importance of what Christ decided. That he decided how he would give these gifts out. He decided who would receive each gift. And what that means for us is that we don't have a reason to feel inferior to anybody else's gift, right? If someone has a gift that I don't have, I have no reason to envy them or to feel inferior to them because God in his infinite wisdom knew that wasn't the right gift for me. I would love to be able to stand up here and play an instrument and sing, but that's not what he had planned for me. So that's not what, I don't have that gift. But on the other hand, the fact that God gave these gifts out, that, that Christ gave these gifts out individually means that I have no reason to boast over the gifts that I do have. Because I can't go around, look at me, I'm talented. No, 
God is the one who decided what I will do. It has nothing to do with me except that I receive this free gift, this free spiritual gift. Now, as we move on down in our, in our, in our text, Paul is going to list several of those gifts specifically. Not all of them, but he's just going to pick some out. And all of the gifts that he lists here have to do with handling the Word of God. Now, you remember, point three was that we learn the Word of God, right? That we hear the Word of God. So, verse 11 and he gave, who is he? Christ. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Notice, he gave. That's so important. He gave. These spiritual leaders are gifts God freely gave the church. I want you to really think about that for a minute. He says, apostles, and prophets, and evangelists, and pastors, and teachers. Those are gifts that he gave you, that he gave us as a body. He gave those to us as a gift. It's not something that he said, okay, form a committee and then go find somebody. That's not what he did, right? He gave them as gifts to us. This term apostle literally means one who is sent. Now, the New Testament apostles were sent on a mission by Christ to be a witness of him. That's what they were for, right? Um, they were the first messengers of the gospel after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and they were the foundation of the church, with Jesus being the cornerstone. Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So they were foundational. He says, he goes on, he says another gift, he gave some as prophets. Now a prophet was a spokesman for God, and they spoke in God's name on his authority. Now a prophet was never to speak on their own authority. They were never to give their own opinion, ever, right? They only delivered the message God gave them. So apostles, prophets, that's the foundation, that's foundational for the church. They were the leaders, the gifts that were given at that time for the foundation of the church. He goes on, he says, some as evangelists. In other words, God, another gift. He gave some as evangelists. This term literally means a herald of good news or glad tidings. Right? These are the people that deliver the good news to people who haven't heard it. These are our missionaries, right? And then he says, some as pastors and teachers. Now, according to Greek grammar, you're going to find people that tell you those are separate, right? But if you look at the Greek, the Greek grammar, this is one office, pastor, teacher, right? In fact, there are many scholars who prefer the translation teaching pastor because Every pastor needs to be a teacher, but not every teacher needs to be a pastor, right? It's, it's one office the way he's talking about it here. And this word pastor, it means shepherd. The job of the pastor is to preach the word of God. That's it. To preach the word of God. They take the truth of God's word and they lead people, they lead us to live according to it. That's what God has called them to do. That is why we gather, that's why we come together, right? We gather to hear the word of God. And God has gifted men to be able to help in that purpose. Look, Christ gave these leaders that we're talking about, these gifts that, he's give, that, that we're talking about, he gave them for two reasons. To prepare God's people for the work of service, which is just another way to say ministry, and so that the body of Christ might be built up. Look at verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, I want to point something out here. I want to stop for just a minute and point something else, okay? Somewhere along the course of the American church, 
people started believing that the only job of a Christian, the only job of a saint, is to go to church, right? It's just to go to church. And all of the other stuff that needs to happen, that's why we have paid staff. We say, you know, well, we're busy. We can't do that, but that's okay. We pay a preacher to do that. And I want to tell you right now that that's wrong. That is not biblical. Now, may shock some of you, but the work of service is not the job of the pastor. Personal evangelism, benevolence ministries, visitation, not the job of the pastor. Your neighbor or your family member needs to hear the gospel, that's not your pastor's job. You think we need more people in church? That's not your pastor's job. Adrian Rogers, who was a Southern Baptist pastor, served three terms as the SBC president. This is a quote. It's not my job to fill the pews, it's my job to fill the pulpit. Now, I want to be clear. When we talk about work of service, the way it's written here, biblically, that is not our pastor's job. But as a saint and as a church member, he is part of the ministry team. So, if it's not the pastor's job to visit the sick, to share the gospel with my neighbor, to get more people in the pew, then whose job is it? That's the job of the saints. You go, all right, Swafford, who's these saints you're talking about? You and me. That's our job. Right? You say, I'm not a saint. Right? Well, let me tell you something. If you're in Christ, the word of God says you're a saint. Ephesians 2, starting at 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and a member of the household of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, that's us, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place called upon the name of the Lord. We are saints. The word of God says we're saints, right? If you've been born again, you're a saint. Just go one step further. Peter tells us that you have the faith to go along with being a saint. 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, listen to this, to those who have received a faith as the same kind as ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. You know what that's saying? That's saying that every one of you that are in Christ have exactly the same faith as Peter, James, and John. So where did this faith come from? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And how are we going to hear if we don't have a pastor? That's what the word of God says to us. Now our pastor, through the work of the Holy Spirit, has equipped us with the knowledge of Christ and our Savior has provided us with the necessary faith. So we have to ask ourselves, when was the last time you shared your faith? You're a saint. It's your job. When was the last time you invited someone to church? When was the last time you encouraged another believer? Look, the point is this. The point I'm trying to get across. If you see something that needs to be done, do it. Because we're the saints. We're the ministry team. All right, so if all of that is our job, then exactly what does the pastor do? The job of the pastor 
is to make sure that you're equipped to do what you've been called to do. Back to verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So the pastor's job is to make sure that you know the proper doctrine. That you, are, that you accurately understand the gospel. That you understand that Jesus is the only way to salvation. That you understand God's purpose and intention for you. That you know what God expects of you. And you know that God can use you. And you know what? We have a pastor who does not take that responsibility lightly. We have a pastor who carries this burden squarely on his shoulders every single day because he loves you and he loves the Lord. So hopefully you can see why it's so important that we gather together as a church. Look, we assemble so that we can have the word of God explained to us. Does that mean you can't read it on your own? Absolutely not. You should read it on your own. But the necessity of gathering is found in the fact that God specifically gifted men to proclaim his word, to teach it, to explain it. If we could do this all on our own, why would he give the church these gifts? Look at, keep going in verse 12. This is why he equips us. To the building up of the body of Christ. Now I want you to note, listen to this, pay attention. He says, for the building up of the body of Christ. What he does not say is the increasing of the number of people in church on Sunday. Look, the issue here is not the quantity of saints, it's the quality of saints. Saints are equipped for the work of service so that they can engage, they, we can engage in nurturing other saints and then the outcome of that is church growth. Because until we can take care of each other, we can't expect our church to grow. We have to nurture, that's what we're here for, right? So God's plan in gifting men to proclaim the word is to prepare the saints to perfect the body. Going to verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. God's intention is for the church to be perfect, to be like him, to be perfect. And the way God does this is through the corporate study of his word. So what does his perfect body look like? Back to 13, until we all attain the unity of faith. Look, if 50 people study a passage on their own, there's a really good chance that they'll kind of figure out what it means. But if 50 people study it together under the guidance of God's appointed teacher, then we'll all come out unified in what that scripture is teaching. And that's what Paul's saying here. That's what he's referring to here. Come together corporately to study God's word so that we can be unified and perfected. But God doesn't want a church that is theologically scattered. Ephesians 4, 5 tells us one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's not up for discussion. There is no debate on what God wants. Look, we're, we're, we're not looking for a doctrine that we can agree on we're looking for the truth of god period nothing else right and then once we understand and we've learned and the, the truth of god then we can unify around that that's the way the body is perfected right? this is why we have to come together under the teaching of our god appointed and equipped teacher 
to learn the truth of God. So Paul continues in verse 13, and the knowledge of the Son of God. Again, this is why we come together to study Scripture, because in the Scripture, Christ is revealed. You say, I want to know Christ. I want to see Christ. I want to meet Christ. I want to hear Christ. Christ is in the Scripture. That's where you'll meet him. You'll meet Christ in the Scriptures. We don't just go out on our own personal voyage to try to find out what is Jesus to me today. Right? We come together, we study together, so that together we can, grow, we, can, we can form this intimate knowledge of who Scripture says Christ is. We meet and study and obtain doctrinal unity and intimate knowledge of our Lord and Savior. That's why we gather. Another aspect of this perfect body that Christ wants is spiritual maturity. 13b, he says, to a mature man. If you have an NIV, it says to become mature. In other words, no longer a child. So what does that mean, no longer a child? I'm going to read out, uh, I'm going to go past this a little bit and go Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. It says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all specs unto him who is the head, even Christ. Look, a mature body is a body that is no longer deceived. A, a mature body is a body that can discern false teachings. So how do we mature? How, how, do, we, how, do, how do we learn? How do we become discerning? Well, we gather together for the study of God's word under the instruction of God's appointed leader. And as God's word is systematically explained to those, by those that are gifted to do so, we grow in our wisdom and our knowledge of who Christ is. So a perfected body has doctrinal unity, it has an intimate knowledge, it has spiritual maturity, and finally, it has Christ-likeness. Back to 13. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In short, the perfect body looks more and more like Jesus every day. And how does this happen? Well, the more you look at Jesus, the more you become like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So this mirror that, they're, that he's talking about, this mirror is the Word of God. And the more we look into it, the more we look into the Word of God, the more we are transformed to the image of Christ. Look, God's Word transforms us to be like Christ, and that is why we have to come together and study it. Now, I hope this is all making sense. We gather to praise God. We gather to encourage one another. We gather to have the scripture proclaimed and explained and applied. And as this occurs, we grow in unity, we grow in our knowledge, we grow in our spiritual maturity, and we become more Christ-like. And that's why we meet. That's why we do church. To praise God, to encourage each other, to, to, to learn the word of God. Look, the point is, Cliff note version, ready? Get out of the stands and get in the game. Christianity is not a spectator sport. So get up, get dressed, get here and get to work. 
We have no excuses for not taking ownership of this body. We have no excuses for not taking ownership of this church. Look, Pastor Tim has and continues to equip us with the true word of God just as Jesus has commanded him to do. So we must take what we have learned in the work of service towards others so that our church will grow to maturity in Christ, so that his kingdom rule will be extended through us, and so our community will get a glimpse of the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Ray Steadman, I love Ray Steadman, he wrote this, when everything's left to the preacher, this is what he's talking about, when we leave everything to the preacher, when we say, that's not my job, because we hire him and pay him to do that, Ray Steadman said that Christianity becomes little more than a Sunday morning spectator sport, much like the definition of football. 22 men on the field desperately in need of, a, of rest, and 20,000 in the stands desperately in need of exercise. The work of the ministry belongs to the entire believer, the body of believers, to all of us. And when we rediscover this pattern of Ephesians 4, when we as Christians grab hold of our God-given roles as ministers of God's eternal plan, then the entire body will come alive. Right? That's when lives are changed. That's when ministry is exposed. That's when communities are impacted. And isn't that what we pray for? Isn't that what we expect to be done? We started with the question, why do we assemble together as a church? And what we've seen, what I hope you understand, and I have to be honest, what was taught to me as I was studying is that we gather to praise God because he deserves it. We gather to encourage each other. Okay, no Lone Rangers. We have to be there for each other. We have to encourage each other. And we gather to have the scripture proclaimed and explained and applied to us. Now, based on that truth, why do, why do we come to church? Why did you come today? When we come to church, when we come to do church, do we come with a plan? Do we come expecting to meet Jesus? Do we come expecting to praise? Do we come expecting to feel the Holy Spirit? Or do we come expecting to be done by noon? Which we're not. We need to, as a body, and believe me, I love this body. I love every one of you. But if you're like me, sometimes gathering becomes a habit. It's just on the calendar that at this time we're going to be in church, right? And then we're going to get out. And oftentimes while we're here, we're thinking about those lunch plans that we made for when we get done. That's not why we're, that's not why we're called to assemble. We're called to assemble to praise God. We're called to assemble to encourage each other. We're called to assemble so that we can learn the word of God, so that we are equipped to encourage one another. So my challenge is for you to really think about why are you even coming to church? Why do you continue to do this every Sunday? Why do you continue 
to go to cottage prayer? Why do you continue to come to Sunday school? Do you come expecting to meet God? And if so, then when we meet, man, we should raise the roof. When we encourage each other, we should just spur each other on to to be all that Christ expected us, what he intended for us to be. And our learning should not stop when we leave. Right? We don't, you know, it's, as a teacher, you, you, you teach in class, expecting them, for whatever reason, to go home and kind of continue to learn. And then they come back the next week and you ask them questions and they don't remember because they never looked at it. So do we do that? Or do you take what, we, what you hear from the pulpit, what Tim tells us, what he teaches us, and then do you go home and you continue throughout the week to look at it and read it and learn from it? That's what we're called to do. So if you'll stand with me, what I would like for you to do, if you would, please, is just bow your heads and ask the Lord to search you. And if you're not doing this, if you're not, if you're not coming with a purpose, ask the Lord to search you and to remove anything that's in the way. gracious heavenly father Lord I think we owe you an apology we have not praised you the way you deserve to be praised we have not encouraged each other the way you called us to encourage each other and Lord we have a tendency to only use your word when we need it Lord, I ask you that you would please just move inside each one of our hearts and help us to understand how much you love us and how much you desire to have an intimate relationship with each one of us. Lord, I pray that you would just move this week throughout each one of our hearts so that when we come back together again, that we are excited about being here that we are just ready to raise this roof and just hold you, Lord. Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, that doesn't have a personal relationship with you, pray that you would just stir their hearts today, that you would make it so uncomfortable that they cannot stand anymore. They've got to come meet you. So, Lord, we just give it to you. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, Lord, amen. As Roger plays, the altar's open.